Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on September the 20th, 2015. I always find that periods of shock, you might say, a form of shock that covers the world, as it's indeed intended to do, is always aimed, of course, at the masses of the general population, the people who depend on media of all kinds to give them their thoughts and ideas, even things to look forward to. They expect the media information services, you might say, which they really take for granted. They've been trained to believe that people are out there looking after your best interests. You accept on face value, basically, without any critical thinking at all, that those who own and control the media have the same values as yourself, because they live in your own country, for instance. And that's a whole story in itself. But the thing is, information today is becoming more and more difficult to get, as it was indeed set up and intended to get that way by those who control cultural systems. And I've mentioned in detail so many times in the past that it's rather monotonous to go over certain things. But remember, this is the century of change. That's what there's an academia called it in the last century. And they were all in on the big kind of technocratic push for the expertly designed and controlled human system worldwide. A very old idea. It's had different names for, since for an awful long time, in fact. But it was congealed and taken over by a group who already put some of it into, into operation a long time ago. Based in London at the time, at least uh, these are the ones that... Remember, because they're based in London doesn't mean that they're all from London. Uh, or from England for that matter at all because their idea was to create a world society run on a particular system and along the way they'd adapt and adopt into it the ideas of taking over the world's resources for those who who happen to be themselves who are deemed fit enough to do so, you see judging on the fact that their own families had controlled so much of the world's resources for an awful long time they wanted to take it all over and run it properly, you see. But they also wanted to take over the systems of governance, let's call governance rather than government, because eventually governments would be done away with into a global structural domination by a, a world system of parliamentary. Uh, it wasn't even parliamentary basis, really. More, it was a blend of the communist system and the addition of helpers of non-governmental organizations. This they would still call democracy because technically people got some say in the things if they belonged to the proper and authorized NGOs, non-governmental organizations. The Soviet system, remember, and this is not a Soviet idea because it was a Western group who set up and by people in the West who even they might not even belong there. But the fact is they set up a system of bringing about this this entire setup for the perfected world, the perfected humanity, the 
affected society, etc. And they knew all the obstacles it would take to bring it all about. They brought in the humanistic scientists of all kinds to help them uh, set up organizations, which eventually often, many of them became government-authorized organizations into social work and uh, psychiatry and uh, psychology for the masses, uh, mental health, you might say. They would permeate all educational systems across the world eventually. And once again, they'd have a central control, generally through the United Nations organizations and this vast amount of umbrella groups and non-governmental organizations underneath it. That would, that would, the way they could standardize these programs and education and everything to train and train and train in a behavioral, scientific way uh, using those techniques that were worked out long ago uh, by, again, other guys on board with this whole system of the perfectibility of the citizen. Uh, they would train the citizen. However, they also knew and boasted about, and some of the individuals involved higher up at the top knew that they themselves, being what they claimed the higher intelligentsia, had the right to retain their natural, non-indoctrinated mentality and cultural system at the top. And um, that, again, was reiterated by members such as... um, Charles Galton Darwin, who who wrote the book The Next Million Years, and how the, the guys at the top would remain wild men. They would not have the indoctrination. They wouldn't have the built-in default systems where if a topic was mentioned, where taboo training had been created with nudges and all the rest of it, uh, using uh, various techniques and neuroscience and so on, uh, they wouldn't have that. They wouldn't. Get, they'd have to think freely because they would be running or piloting the the, the, sh- the spaceship Earth. They could, you might say. So uh, that's all part of it. So part of it was to take over the world's resources, run it properly, uh, bring in the technocratic system step by step, very very gradually at first. Again, not to scare off the people who had a, an idea of how their governments are supposed to operate, how the systems in the government were supposed to operate and so on. So you do it through gradualism and intergenerational change as you're training each generation in the school system into a slightly, always slightly different culture. Now we're on a rampage now because we've eliminated what was all the the right ways in, uh, in the past until often the wrong ways are prime and you can't speak out against what are now the wrong ways because they're supposed to be the proper ways now. Everything's been reversed, you see. Because culture itself, for most countries, had to be destroyed. And this new mishmash brought in for the century of change. And everything's rampaging ahead uh, at full, full speed now to make it all happen. Now, to the general public, they always seem to feel shock, as I say a form of shock, when they don't understand why things are happening. They don't understand why uh, the the masses of refugees are suddenly coming in now. They've always been coming in, but now there's masses of them in a well-organized, coordinated fashion by, again, thousands and hundreds of of non-governmental organizations that probably boast on websites and so on. I'll be touching on that tonight, of how to get into countries, how to eliminate the borders and all the rest of it, and how to change the countries once they're in it, actually change from within the whole system of the culture and the governments inside. So, 
we're going through all of this to the general population who don't know enough. They're just in a form of shock, you see. It's like time stands still suddenly and you have nothing to look forward to. Everything is bad news and the financial system's going to take another nosedive. And uh, it never occurs to them that, that everything's designed that way at the same time. Because the whole idea of technocracy was eventually to bring in a new monetary uh, system worldwide. And I've gone through the history ad nauseum of uh, the, the Bank for International Settlements, the IMF system, and so on. And the World Bank, all being set up by the same group in England that eventually became uh, called by its present name, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is a private organization of very, very influential and rich people. And its associates, the Council on Foreign Relations, and also set up a specialized branch of trilateralists, they call it trilateralists. And wherever you have a big world meeting going on, or even a crisis situation, you'll always find a trilateralist, the same ones being injected into these hot spots to supposedly manage the system. Uh, they even parachute the technocrats in now and bypass elections like they did in Greece for instance, and in Italy, and just appointed, appointed for a while uh, people who were from the IMF and central banking system uh, and so on, and they happened to be trilateralists too, both of them. So everything's actually working the way it's supposed to go, according to technocracy, this idea. It's got many other names too, but technocracy is the idea behind it all, of the perfectibility, the completely changing of, of systems, perfect them, perfect society into good obedient citizens, of course, by using intense indoctrination, social engineering, and very, very workable and well-tested techniques of creating guilts within people, for instance, and making them obey. And whenever certain topics come up, they go into default mode and go get set back at the at the starting position. They will not go into certain things. They feel guilty about things. They'll blush even. And that, that's the training. That's your Pavlovian conditioning. Now, the idea of the side of this organization that was to work into setting up the changes for the 20th century, even using warfare and so on, uh, to bring countries to their knees and bring them into this global structural system where everyone give up, give up their rights and their freedoms to run the world in a more smooth manner, supposedly, and a better way, etc. This part of technocracy launched itself openly for the first time about 1933 and 34, and even got, at the same time, for a while, uh, a place uh, to teach at... Uh, Columbia University in the U.S. And after it, it, it uh, was basically put out of there, they continued in Canada and elsewhere for an awful long time. And it never changed. And, and, and it's used the same goals and ideals and so on right up to the present day. It's all through psychiatry. You find the top members who, who are speaking out about changing uh, the behaviors of humanity for the better and so on are all technocrats. They're actually members of these organizations. So H.G. Wells, in fact, put out his Shape of Things to Come, the Shape of Things to Come, the, the book, uh, the same year as it was openly launched. That was part of it. It was meant to coincide with it and show through a fictional version how they could end all war by bringing a global 
structural system run by the scientists, you see. That scientists were the only logical or rational people in the world. And that involved all kinds of sciences, remember. Social sciences, uh, psychologists, behavioral psychologists, all the different fields that we hear about today all the time, like uh, neuroscience and so on. And uh, they've made an awful lot of headway because we're pretty well there. They've, they've turned a lot of ideals and all the things that kept countries strong, uh, with internally even uh, culturally, have been destroyed, you see. And it's always through experts, experts. Bertrand Russell, many, many more, were all members of this organization too. And that's what went to permeate into, uh, it became the CFR group, for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and it became the Trilateral Commission Group as well. Specialized branches within Trilateral managed the financial system to bring about a global financial system, you see. And eventually they talked about credits for the public that would be issued. They would need a time of crisis to make it happen, to make the public accept it. And the government, uh, in tandem with these private, I call them racketeers, I don't care what you, what you, what you call them, but the top bankers of the planet, the Goldman Sachs and so on, uh, they would issue these credits with con- in conjunction with the governments, and you could not ever save up uh, the ones that are unused because they would renew them every week, and the ones you saved up would simply vanish. And you start with the same sum every week or every month or whatever except for themselves at the top, because living and, and being so important in a structural system like that, those at the top need to live in a better uh, standard of living than everybody else. Naturally, that's how it's always been, the kings and queens and all the rest of them. They thought they could speed up the process of evolution, you see, and societal evolution by creating wars, very prolonged wars that would take their toll financially and so on, burden the public with debt, etc., to bring on the crisis and create many other havoc uh, systems by, for instance, mass immigration under the the guise of refugee and so on, uh, which would also burden countries that were already burdened during the final part of it until they all fell in unison and had to call for a world organization to get them out of the hole. That's the idea. And we're pretty well there today. Uh, That's what so much of this is actually about. And as I say, when you look into the incredible financial uh, backing of the the organizations that are behind um, organizing and helping all the refugees move into the what, what used to be an independent sovereign states, now under the EU nations, um, and that shows you how far it's gone too, then uh, it's almost pretty well there. It's, you're, you're living in the, uh, the, the, the grand finale to an extent. All it's cheered by all the helpers of the, those who are behind it all. It's, it's cheered as a great thing, of course. You cannot... Uh, save yourself when you're starving in a country and then you're told to feed everybody else at the same time. It's impossible, of course, and it's meant to be, you see. It's meant to be. So anyway, you're well under the system already. You're only going through forms of legalities while they legally change it, Uh, with your permission, of course, because you'll think, what else can we do? We're broke. We all all this money, all this debt, etc. We've got perpetual war on the go. That was another technique, too to burden countries with massive debt. And uh, uh, the system truly has been sped up. 
something that could have taken thousands of years to bring about, they've sped it up within a century. And, and they talked about this openly well over a hundred years ago. We're always given the managed reasons to manage our minds into going along with things, you see. I mean, here's an article here, uh, pretty typical, actually, of what they tell the general public. Uh, this, is, this is when this, the banking crisis crippled the global market seven years ago. Central bankers stepped in as the last lender of last resort. Profligate private sector loans were moved on to the public sector balance sheet. In other words, the ordinary people had to pay, pay them off through your taxes, you see. And vast money printing gave the global economy room to heal. That's the nonsense that you're fed, you see. To make it seem reason, reasonable and logical what's happened and brought you to the present step, you see. Since time is now rapidly running out, from China to Brazil, the central banks have lost control. Now, what happens when you lose control? You have to say, we need something different, and an authority on a global scale to make this, to get us out of this mess, save us all, save us, please save us, etc., etc. So, and at the same time, the global economy is grinding to a halt. It's only a matter of time before stock markets collapse under the weight of their lofty expectations and record valuations. Now, don't forget, folks, that through the World Trade Organization, again set up by the same group, Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, Trilateral Group, a long time ago. It's all one group, really. Um, they knew that through all those free trade deals and so on, and encouragement and actually help with financial aid for countries to in the West to move all their factories and so on to China, they knew you'd end up with a service economy which doesn't produce anything. You see, except really... But you buy everything from abroad, it goes through the merchant middlemen, and eventually it goes to the, the, the chain stores that you're all being given now. They've eliminated every small private store and family store and so on, which is also part of the plan. And, uh, and things just go round and round, you see. That's, that's a service economy. You paddle in the pool until you're so tired you start sinking. That, that's inevitable. And they've always known this at the top because they, they published lots of information when Britain was joining the, this new um, economic union, supposedly, and being going to be turned into, into a service economy. It was discussed by economists in the papers back then, long ago. Then America copied it too because they were in on the big, they were run by the same folk who run the rest of the planet. And uh, and here you are, you don't have the factories, you can't make anything anymore pretty well, except that. And we're all tired in the pool, and we're, ready, we're all starting to sink, of course. Has to happen. And even China, of course, as you know, is so involved in overproduction uh, that uh, it's flagging as well. And that always happens, too, where it's a group of countries each producing their own goods and so on and selling them abroad, or one massive one that's taken over with the same private companies moved to China, uh, you end up with this massive slump as things uh, are just overproduced. It's all junk you're buying anyway. It's not meant to last. You well, you well know. You all know that. This article from the Telegraph also goes on to say, China was a great savior of the world economy in 2008. The launching of an unprecedented stimulus package sparked an infrastructure investment boom. The voracious demand for commodities to fuel its construction boom dragged along 
oil and resource-rich emerging markets. The Chinese economy has now hit a brick wall. Economic growth has dipped below 7% for the first time in a quarter of a century, according to official data. That probably means the real economy is far weaker. The People's Bank of China has pursued several measures to boost the flagging economy. The rate of borrowing has been slashed during the past 12 months from 6% to 4.85%. Opting to devalue the currency was a last resort and signaled the great era of Chinese growth that is rapidly approaching its end game. Data for experts showed an 8.9% slump in July from the same period a year before, and analysts expected exports to follow to fall only 0.3%, so this was a huge miss. The Chinese housing market is also in a perilous state. House prices have fallen sharply after decades of steady growth. For the millions who stored their wealth and property, it makes for unsettling times. Then they go on about the, to the commodity collapse and, and so on. And uh, it's a, the story that they give to you, you see, to make it seem reasonable and logical as to why we've got to the stage we're at, but missing all the fact that your own politicians all signed global deals to deindustrialize your nations and put it all to China quite some some years ago. And many of you have lived through it, it's not that long ago. And it also what happened at the time too with lots and lots and lots of people, millions of them out of work and lots of folk depended upon the factory economy system and it also made sure that you could not be independent as a nation. You're now called interdependent, especially when you can't make anything yourselves anymore. That was all planned that way, folks. Then you go on to this article. The China fixed asset investment tumbles to the lowest since 2000. And China's fixed asset investment rose at the slowest pace in 15 years. And industrial production trailed analyst estimates. You know, these analysts and specialists and this this amorphous thing of money and trading investments and selling bonds and all the rest of it. How come they're always... You ever wondered why we always end up where we're, we end up where we are and we always do every so many years because it's designed that way to happen, you see. And no nation can constantly keep expecting further production every year and higher domestic product and all the rest of it. And uh, it, it doesn't work out that way, of course. But it doesn't matter. Each time you have a crash, they go back into the same old nonsense. And it's designed to go that way. And you'll hear, again, they'll bring out these experts when the time is right, telling us, oh, we can't go on like this anymore. We, we need a new system. That's what they're going to tell you, you see. But first, they must prepare your minds to accept that, and it all seem logical to you, never realizing this is all pre-planned a long time ago. Anyway, this is industrial production trailed analyst estimates, raising further question marks over the effectiveness of government efforts to revive growth. Then they give the usual statistics game, etc., which I won't go into. And it says uh, the economy is showing no signs of recovery. This is Ding Shuang. Uh, Chief China Economist at Standard Chartered PLC in Hong Kong. And it says the weakening economic figures underscore the challenge the government faces in meeting its growth target of 7%. Again, they're always fixing growth targets, right? As exports decline and producer price deflation deepens. 
factory shutdowns in Beijing and surrounding provinces before a September 3rd military parade in the capital may also have contributed to the weaker-than-forecast output reading. Uh, so you're meant to believe this is all there is to it, you see. Just China's having a slump. They never mention the fact you should be making all your own stuff anyway in your own countries. Isn't that amazing? Because yeah, folk will read this thing, well, geez, well, we've all had it if China goes, you see. But it never, it never occurs to them that we always made our own stuff before at home, you know. It's quite astonishing to me, in a way. I, I kind of look at the whole world and uh, the sociology of it and the behavioural manipulations of it all by the experts who all belong to the same organisations and the big, this big pyramid system. And you can see it's all how it's all manipulated from generation to generation. Quite something. And... Um, it says, demand for industrial products from domestic and overseas markets is still on the weak side. We're all broke. We can't afford to buy anything. As they constantly devalue the currencies abroad, as it's all designed to go, you see, uh, you, folk just stop buying because they don't have the cash anymore. They, ha- they hammered the states with Obamacare be- at the right time from, from a technocrat's point of view because this is exactly when um, you'd have that extra cash it's now going to Obamacare, this $800 a month sort of thing for the average person, single person, on a fairly low income, by the way. You hammer them at the right time, and they don't have the money to spend now, or the spending money and all the knickknacks and so on they would normally buy. And it says a Bloomberg gauge of monthly estimated gross domestic product increased 6.64%. That means nothing to us, does it? Absolutely nothing. And investment in real estate development rose 3.5%. Nothing has ever gone up, 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 up. Never mind the fact it's riddled with corruption. Remember, every price is someone's idea. Then you have a cabal getting together. They set the prices, the expected prices of everything, housing or anything else. And they overprice everything to this till eventually it's just out of sight. It's castles in the air, not on the ground, not even a hovel on the ground. It's, there's all castles in the air. But um, that's the, the farcical system we've lived in under. And eventually all this will be pointed out to you by the experts when they, they bring on their absolute, absolute crash. Whether it's right now or not, I don't know. But uh, they'll bring on an absolute crash to, to, and they'll bring them all on, all trilateral guys, and they'll explain to us in simplistic terminology uh, why we must change our entire way of being and stop competing. All competition must be destroyed. That's one of the tenets of technocracy as they manage the whole world economy, you see. And during it all, remember too uh, that big international corporations are supposed to take over all the world's resources. That was the first thing that they set out to do. And then, and at the same time, they were doing that through the British Empire system. They were trying to establish a British system, which wasn't British at all, really, because it was controlled from a group from London who often didn't even come from Britain at all. But the fact is, uh, this was their system. They would take over the world's resources, and at the same time, uh, they would bring in a more noble society. And they would even use Christian missionaries. That's what they did for a long time to bring in a common value system so they don't stop killing each other, etc. And eventually that, they did away with them when they built up the social studies organizations and so on to indoctrinate children in all the schools across the world. And so the taking over the world's resources 
eventually ends up with the vital resources. And there's nothing more vital than food, shelter, water, clothing, heat, and so on for the countries that go freezing like I do for more than half the year. And this article I read on the air, it was not on a radio show, in 2013, it says, the global water grab meets the new water burns, and that's from Global Research. And Global Research, I mentioned it many times, it's a kind of communistic uh, leading Marxist, or, or maybe even call it neo-Trotskyist, I suppose, these days. But uh, uh, they, they come from, from that viewpoint. So they do watch the, 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 the big corporations taking over vital things. But it was the global water grab... Uh, meet the new water barns and writing the National Geographic December 2012 about small-scale irrigation techniques with simple buckets, affordable pumps, strip lines and other equipment that are enabling farm families to weather dry seasons, raise yields, diversify their crops and lift themselves out of poverty. Water expert Sandra Postel of the Global Water Policy Project cautioned against reckless land and water-related investments in Africa. And she says, unless African governments and foreign interests lend support to these farmer-driven initiatives rather than undermine them through land and water deals that benefit large-scale commercial schemes, the best opportunity in decades for societal advancement in the region will be squandered. That same month, the online publication Market Oracle reported that the new water barns, the Wall Street banks, and elitist multi-billionaires are buying up water all over the world at an unprecedented pace. The report reveals two phenomena that have been gathering speed and that could potentially lead to profit accumulation at the cost of communities and commons. The expansion of market instruments beyond the water supply and sanitation to other areas of water governance. Interesting term. And the increasingly prominent role of financial institutions. And it goes on to say, in several instances, this has meant that the government itself has set up public corporations that run like a business, contracting out water supply and sanitation operations to those with expertise. Now, they're all paid off, of course, and it's all corrupt, but this is how they word it here. Or entering into public-private partnerships, often with water multinationals. That's a great game, this, this public-private partnership deal. It's all part of the Millennium Project, by the way, as well, which is also Agenda 21. This happened recently in Nagpur and New Delhi, India, and most rural areas, ensuring a clean drinking water supply and sanitation continues to be a challenge for profit companies such as Sarvajal have become setting up prepaid water kiosks or water ATMs that would dispense units of water upon the insertion of a prepaid card. It's no surprise that these are popular among people who otherwise have no access to clean drinking water. Around the same time this came out back then, I read an article about uh, uh, the, one of the big agribusinesses that was involved. In fact, Rothschilds had a big hand in it, in fact, with their family businesses, of buying up all the farmer, the farms around India and putting the, them off the land and so on and taking them over after, again, the usual con games to get them into a state of poverty and and owing money, and so on. And uh, so much of the drinking water in India was getting polluted because they brought in GM crops with all the chemical fertilizers and so on. 
these chemicals which they use are, which we've had in the West for a long time now, as we all go sterile with it too, and have lots of cancers, uh, are, are being applied across the world to many of the countries to make sure their populations get their doses too, of the bisphenols and etc., uh, and all the other things that make you basically sterile and and make you um, uh, basically what they do is uh, it's a female hormone estrogen uh, mimicker and it causes lots and lots of problems but they've been contaminating so much of the water supply the fresh drinking water the income the big boys again same boys that run everything else and say well now that we've done this to you we'll give you fresh water but it's going to cost you big big money and we'll own it all. And this is the game. Uh, this is the game. It's quite simple, folks. It's quite simple. It goes on all the time in business. And it says here that with climate change, however, the water crisis is no longer perceived as confined to developing countries or even primarily a concern related to water supply and sanitation. Freshwater commons are being, becoming degraded and depleted in both developed and developing countries. And the U.S. diversion of water for expanded commodity crop production, biofuels, that was another big gimmick, and gas hydrofracking is compounding the crisis in rural areas. They knew all that before they did it, you see. It all works together for the common outcome, you see. And areas ranging from the Ogallala Aquifer to the Great Lakes in North America, water has been referred to as liquid gold. Billionaires such as T. Boone and Pickens have been buying up land overlying the Ogallala uh, Aquifer, acquiring water rights. Companies such as Dow Chemicals, with long history of water pollution, are investing in the business of water purification, making pollution itself a cash cow. Of course, all these guys tour, all these big corporations are taking over your water, uh, are also in the business of helping pollute you uh, to make it all happen. You see, we've got to do something, or we'll do it, but it's going to cost you. Uh, that's the technique that's been used. And um, you'll find that the same companies, too, they have big, big interlacing businesses with uh, big agri-food businesses, too, for making sure that they, they own all your food, if you want to call it that anymore. And it's, it's, it's astonishing really how they've done it. And your governments are all on board with it, by the way. They all passed the laws to allow them to uh, pollute and to give you the, the poison food. It says, but chemical companies are not alone. GE and its com- competitor Siemens have extensive portfolios, including an array of water technologies to serve the needs of industrial c- customers, municipal water suppliers, or governments. In the last year and a half, two Minnesota-based companies have uh, become large players in the business, such as Ecolab acquiring Nalco and Pentair by merging with Tyco's flow control unit, both now belonging to S&P's 500. Wonderful, isn't it? By the way, I should also mention all these companies too are on board with global warming because they terrify the public. Oh, in the near future, the air's going to become a dried out fossil, basically. Um, We've got, we got, we got to start putting something that all the, the government, that's your tax money, back in them to, to expand their private business. That's a favorite thing, especially in the U.S. You, you, you do all kinds of things to get folk to, to pay for you expanding your business. A lot of gimmicks are involved. But it says the financial industry has also zeroed in on water. In the summer of 2011, Citigroup issued a report on water investments. The much-quoted statement by Wilhelm Butcher, 
chief economists at Citigroup gives an inkling of Citigroup's conclusion, water has, uh, as an asset class will, in my view, become eventually the single most important physical commodity-based asset class, dwarfing oil, copper, agriculture commodities, and precious metals. Once again, several others have already seen water as an important investment opportunity, including GE's Energy Financial Services, Goldman Sachs, and several asset management firms are involved investing in farmland in Asia, Africa, South America, and Eastern Europe. Now, if we go into the, the, this, this year's article by the same group uh, or organization, Global Research, this is the new water barns, Wall Street, mega banks are buying up the world's water. And that came out in February, I think it was this year, or yeah, I think it was, was February or whatever, or just oh, wait a minute, yeah, I think it was first put out and then re put out in May 25, 2015, this one. Disturbing trade in water sectors accelerating worldwide. The new water barns of Wall Street banks and latest multi billionaires are buying up the water all over the world at an unprecedented pace. Familiar mega banks are an, an investing powerhouses such as Goldman Sachs, naturally, J.P. Morgan, naturally, uh, Chase, Citigroup, UBS, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, uh, Mercari Bank, Barclays Bank, the Blackstone Group uh, Alliance, and HSBC Bank, amongst others, are consolidating their control over water. Wealthy tycoons such as T. Boone Pickens, former President George H.W. Bush, and his family, Hong Kong's Lai Kai-shing, Philippines' Manuel V. Pange Lilnan, and other Filipino billionaires, and others are also buying thousands of acres of land with aquifers, lakes, water rights, water utilities, and shares in water engineering and technology companies all over the world. The second disturbing trend is that while the new water barns are buying up water all over the world, governments are moving fast, and this is an important part too, and naturally, your own governments, you keep electing, it doesn't matter what side you collect, they're all the same, because it's all the same bunch folks working for the same masters. Uh, so the governments are moving fast to limit citizens' ability to become water self-sufficient. They've been doing that for years now, as evidenced by the well-publicized Gary Harrington's case in Oregon, in which the state criminalized the collection of rainwater in three ponds located on his private land by convicting him on nine counts and sentencing him for 30 days in jail. Let's put this criminalization in perspective. Billionaire T. Boone Pickens owned more water rights than any other individuals in America, with rights over enough of the Ogallala Aquifer to drain approximately 200,000 acre feet, or 65 billion gallons of water a year. But ordinary citizen Gary Harrington cannot collect rainwater runoff on 170 acres of his private land. It's a strange new world order in which multi-billionaires and elitist banks can own aquifers and lakes, but ordinary citizens cannot even collect rainwater and snow runoff in their own backyards and private lands. So water is the oil of the 21st century. Andrew Levera, CEO of Dow Chemical Company, that's what he said back in 2008. Because I say here, And he quotes some of the article from 2008 uh, here, why big banks uh, may be buying up your public water system, which I detailed how both mainstream and alternative media coverage on water has tended to focus on individual corporations and super investors seeking control water by buying up water rights and water utilities. 
But paradoxically, uh, the hidden story is far more complicated one. I argue that the real story of the global water sector is a convoluted one involving interlocking globalized capital, Wall Street and global investment firms, banks and other elite private equity firms often transcending national boundaries to partner with each other, with banks and hedge funds, with technology corporations and insurance giants, with regional public sector pension funds and with sovereign wealth funds. They're moving rapidly into the water sector to buy up not only water rights and water treatment technologies, but also to privatize public water utilities and infrastructure. And all your governments will say, oh, it's true, we'll have to, pri- we'll have to sell them off. All your because you are the taxpayers who created the setting up of all the infrastructure to make your, for your water supplies and gas and everything else, folks. They always privatized it to the big boys once you've perfected it all and built it all. And, they, and their buddies get it for peanuts. Everything at the top is managed. And, and we would call it corrupt, but they don't call it corrupt, you see. Because it's moving into the right hands. You know, the right people who know how to manage things properly. Not like all of you, silly little people, you see. Technocracy again. Now, in 2012, we're seeing this trend of global consolidation of water by elite banks and tycoons accelerating. In a J.P. Morgan equity research document, it states clearly that Wall Street appears well aware of investment opportunities in water supply infrastructure, wastewater treatment, and demand management technologies. Indeed, Wall Street is preparing to cash in the global water grab in the coming decades. For example, Goldman Sachs has amassed more than 10 billion dollars since 2006 for infrastructure investments, which include water. A 2008 New York Times article mentioned Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, uh, Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts, and the Carlyle Group to have amassed an estimated uh, $250 billion war chest, much of it raised in the last two years, to finance a tidal wave of infrastructure projects in the U.S. and overseas. By water, I mean that it includes water rights, that is the right to tap groundwater, aquifers and rivers, land with bodies of water on it or under it, such as lakes, ponds and natural springs on the surface, or groundwater underneath, desalination projects, water purification and treatment technologies, and that's desalination, treatment, chemicals and equipment, irrigation and well drilling technologies, water and sanitation services, and it's a whole kit and caboodle, it's everything, folks. So, it says, since 2008, many giant banks and super investors are capturing more market shares in the water sector and identifying water as a critical commodity, much hotter than petroleum. And it gives you quotes again of Goldman Sachs statements, etc., and how they're really pushing it as well, naturally. So, you see, everyone has planned this way a long time ago. And um, they've always used the public sector to build up everything, all the infrastructure which you need. And we're, uh, you were conned, of course, from the beginning, saying your government, by your government, say, well, we'll protect this, it's yours, and we'll protect that because it's vital. It's vital, you see, infrastructure. And now they're selling it all off, of course, as it was planned to do once you build it all up. Plus, they'll use your tax money to give to these big corporations to kick the whole thing off with their, their private-public partnership deals, which is all uh, we pay for the upkeep for everything. They say this reaping the profits. And so let's get back to technocracy. Remember, 
and say the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which a long ago was called the Lord Alfred Milner Group. And even then, it, it was unknown to most folk, even in the, the British Parliament, because they kept their society as secretive as possible to bring in this this global structure where the proper folk themselves, of course, and all their relatives too, would own the whole world's resources, all the and eventually all the vital things which you need to live, not just the, the play things and all the rest of it, but all the vital things, including water and food and all the rest of it. Pretty well accomplished, and you're going through the last motions of it today as we live. And there are many guys, all oh, global warming and all that nonsense which is pushing, and that's why the, all the top corporations are on board with the idea and help fund all the, uh, the propaganda about it. So everything's got a reason, you see. Technocracy, of course, that's it. The proper folk will manage it all, and they'll manage it and help uh, more cash end up in their pockets from you as time goes on. And at the same time, you've got all the professionals managing your minds, and at the same time, you're just demolishing what's left of cultures and, and, all, and your history and all the rest of it. Most folk in the West don't put up any fight because they've already had many years of conditioning uh, since about the 50s, and accelerating from then uh, through educational systems that you're all guilty of something, you're all bad people. And that must be destroyed, and it's worked awfully, awfully well. So anyway, we jump into uh, this article here, and it says... Uh, Europe can expect millions more refugees to flood in from Syria as a war between Bashar al-Assad and rebel groups. It's not rebel groups, it's, it's financed mercenaries that, of al-Qaeda, ISIS, that are run by the West, has turned the country into a living hell, a UN official has warned. So we're going to get the UN's version, and remember they're part of this whole structural system for this change that's planned. This is currently in the grip of the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. The UN has warned it's being fueled by the Syrian war, which has uprooted half of its pre-war population. I mean, they've killed an awful lot more, too. I mean, uh, and we've watched, by the way, uh, thousands of Christians getting slaughtered over there. Very old, old Christian uh, societies, some of the old, in fact, the oldest in the world, really. Been slaughtered off, and there's been absolutely no uh, hand gone out from the UN or anybody else to help them. But says, but with the situation in Syria deteriorating, far more, uh, more likely to come, warned Peter Salama, head of the UN's Children's Agency, Middle East and North Africa Division. Remember, the UN is part of this technocracy push to change all of the world and the societies and so on. And um, so I'll put that up tonight too. It says, Salma suggested millions and millions more refugees could make their way to Europe in the next few years if the conflict didn't end. About 70% of the 3,000 people landing on the Greek islands daily are Syrians fleeing the war, while around half of those to cross the Mediterranean are trying to escape the conflict. By the way, there's, there's an awful lot more from Bangladesh and India and all the other countries too that are just jumping in. Now that this term refugee, uh, which again is a misnomer in a lot of cases, uh, is, is just slapped on everybody now. It's great how terminology changes to what you, what you actually know is going on, or what you even think is going on. It's awfully, awfully good. But um, it says, uh, Salama said the country had now become a living hell for children, so they always give you the humanitarian thing, and point out that millions of people displaced within Syria are living in horrendous conditions, while more than 4 million Syrian refugees are living in neighboring countries with rapidly dwindling aid budgets to support them. That was all planned long before they invaded Iraq, folks. It's all planned that way by the West, or those who already conquered the West, I should say. And it's, it's worked awfully well, isn't it? They knew what would happen. They always start the wars and then bring in the refugees, as they call them. And along with them come 
folk from all over Africa and everywhere else at the same time, using the same uh, moniker, basically. And they're not refugees, an awful lot of them from other countries, uh, unless you, you want to even transfer this term refugee into economic refugees uh, and so on. Who get in first, remember? They're coming in first where folk who apply can't get in at all, even from all European countries to other European, uh, even into North America, <laughs> if you do it the legal way. Anyway, it comes as shocking new figures from the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights, so just half of the country's population has now been uprooted by the conflict. And next is estimated 10.6 million people have either been displaced from their homes within Syria, become international refugees, or killed. It says uh, another UNHCR spokesman, William Spindler, has downplayed Salama's numbers, insisting that while UNHCR's estimate of 400,000 arrivals this year could be surpassed, we're far yet from millions. Well, the millions have come from everywhere else that's cashing in on it. And that's just a fact, folks. This is a, it's well organised. This whole this is whole movement. You see, why do you think it's suddenly you hear about it in the, in the media? Why do you think suddenly? Because we've been drifting in for years. We've already had the the problems with Britain and across the whole of Europe now for years and years and years from from all over the, uh, the world coming in there under various um, uh, illegal immigration movements. You see. And it doesn't matter if you want to say, oh, they're economic problems or whatever they're coming from. The fact is that they're bypassing all. And countries are already getting flattened for years and years and years uh, because their countries aren't producing anymore. They're all service economies, too, and they're way up there on the debt, of course, scale. Can't afford. They can't afford. Their cost, their, their standard of living has been plummeting for the most folk for such a long time. Now they're going to get burdened with the, the nail in the coffin. It's all planned this way, folks. It's, it's all planned, believe you me. Anyway, here's an article here that's awfully important because this is um, Sky Finds Handbook for EU-Bound Migrants. Now, I, I said before uh, that <laughs> these are the reason you're hearing about now and this big push for, for these migrants, the, big, the, the reason you're hearing about now is because it's massively organized from outside the countries. That are coming from those that are coming in, is they're based within Europe, America, Britain, and so on. All branches of the same organisations, heavily financed, by the way. It's all secretive who finances them, and well, well organised. And it says Sky finds a handbook for the EU-bound migrants. Uh, refugees heading to Greece on people smugglers' boats are given a migrants' handbook packed with tips, maps, phone numbers, and advice about get, how to get across Europe. And howdy. I'll put these links up tonight, by the way, from this particular organization. There's one of many. And they're all, again, associated with the EU uh, and uh, Parliament, that is. And they're associated, too, with United Nations, naturally. It's amongst uh, discarded life jackets and punctured rubber dinghies. Sky News discovered a tattered copy of the unique travel guide washed up on a beach in the Greek island of Lesbos. The booklet's cover features a photograph of a young man on a beach at sunset looking longingly out to sea with oars at his feet as he prepares to make the treacherous crossing. The rough guide is written in Arabic and contains phone numbers of organisations which might help refugees making the journey, such as the Red Cross and the UNHCR. And when you look up their site, by the way, they've even got all the different activist groups, NGO organisations, non-governmental organisations, uh, to contact as soon as you arrive And they, they'll arrange, of course, of lawyers to come in and speak for them and everything else You see, it's quite amazing But uh, 
as he's amongst those behind the booklet, is an organization called W2EU. W2EU, which means Welcome to Europe. But the same organization has welcomed me to Greece and welcome to the, this country and that country and every other country. So Sonia, who didn't want to give her surname, I bet she didn't, is a volunteer with W2EU and told Sky News, activists from our network distribute the guides for free in Turkey. She explained one of the aims of the booklet is to help those who get into trouble on the water. But it's not really. It tells them all how to come in and get past all the legalities and so on. They can call a 24-hour hotline number to provide on the guide. Volunteers then pass their details to the relevant Coast Guard. We take information about how many people are in the boats if they get in trouble, she said. It's a life-saving service we give to refugees. They're going to go anyway, so it's better if we give them advice. But but I'll put up this um, W2EU uh, website, and you can see how they give the, the, the contact list to the NGOs within all different countries that they're going to. And, and uh, they'll have their phone numbers and everything, and how to contact them, and, and uh, they'll bring them in, basically. So never go into shock, this shock that the media is meant to force on you by what all appears to be sudden and unrelated events and so on over a few years. Before they had Gulf War One, folks, they planned all this. Those who planned the wars. And their think tanks did their, all their different evaluations of many, how many refugees they could then force uh, into moving, etc. And, and, and I mean force them to moving into the countries of Europe and so on. And they would set up the NGOs long in advance for all and all different things and get everything ready for them coming in. Because the intention was to destroy all that was and bring in the new. The new not just being the refugees, but a whole new system as the prevailing cultures were destroyed, basically. Including their history and everything. And eventually the future, if there's any competition at all between different ethnic groups will be between the groups move, who've moved into those countries and not the original groups that were there before them. You see, that's what you only have, the strife in the future, and that's the way it's going to be. It's planned that way. So, uh, you know, they, they don't have, just have wars. They have, they're going towards the, tech, the, the technocratic plan, you see to bring in this world order. And it must appear chaotic to the general population to make them allow, to allow this whole new system to come in, to save us from ourselves, from crisis and financial systems and wars and everything else, you see. Scientists and professionals will run your lives from birth to death. In fact, they'll even decide down the road if you live or die, you see, or even get born if they need you or not. Remember going to cunningthroughthematrix.com website and really, if you're really, have to, if you're really interested in finding out about all these things and you'll learn an awful lot. There's thousands of articles up and the authors and everybody, even the students at university have used the site and write to me as you get past to get through their, their um, to get their degrees and so on. And um, it's been helped an awful lot of people, I think, in understanding the system in which you're born into. And things aren't just happenstance and run willy-nilly with sudden crisis and all this and crisis and that and, and so on. It's all planned that way, folks. You know, big businesses plan their corporations' survival sometimes 50 to 100 years in the future with future investments and takeovers maybe 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, and so on and so on and so on. And today, 
all the top corporations all belong to one big club. And that's why when IBM, for instance, has its, its annual meetings and biannual meetings, every single top corporation is, is there. They're attending. And all the CEOs know each other. And the CEOs can leave one type of corporation and move his chair into another one, a uh, completely different um, product, whatever they're selling or, or, or dealing with, and they're quite comfortable. Just musical chairs. One system runs the world. A very old plan is running it. And it's to be run properly, you see, for the first time, where all individual liberty must be eradicated for all of you lot, but not for the guys at the top. They get more and more privileges and freedoms and, and personal rights and so on than you will. And the value of your life will depend upon your status within the community, your necessity to the community for Agenda 21. Your communitarian plans have all set up for you. It's not pessimistic, folks. How can you be pessimistic when you understand it all? And you've never really had an education on this. You kept going with emotive arguments to, to distract you from reasoning things through and learning. And when you're off balance and emotion, you can't see what's going on in reality. Even that your mind is being used by those who, who love the emotional arguments. Well, what can I say, folks? Winter's about here, too, where I am living here. I've had two or three months of warmer weather, and I'm going to go back to it very quickly. Uh, the cold weather that is because the north winds are blowing big time. From Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.